Welcome to Sound Engagement. We are a podcast uh, devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. We're excited to have our guests with us uh, this morning or afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. But Peter, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce to our listeners our guests? Sure. Yeah, I'm so excited. We have a special guest with us today. Serna Alu is a, she's a PhD student in political science, uh, science at Simon Fraser University there in uh, Vancouver. From her website, she says that she has her academic um, her academic research focuses really on state sovereignty, contemporary evolutions, implications for human rights, uh, specifically in Africa. Uh, she studies she has studied issues related to identity politics, diversity and inclusion, free speech. Uh, it's, things that we've also talked a lot about in our podcast as well, um, as well as the area of social media as the new public square and how to have conversations in that uh, forum. Mm -hmm. She uh, previously held a, a sessional teaching position at uh, Langara College in Vancouver and uh, currently maintains a vibrant political and cult cultural commentary account on Instagram, where I found her. So um, yeah, so glad, so glad to have you on. Thanks, Sonia. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so you do describe I, your website, um, which is soniaorlu.com. Um, you describe yourself politically as classical liberal slash libertarian. Um, has that always been the case? Had, did you, how did you kind of come to that? I'm, assu I'm assuming you've, that's evolved over time. How did, you, how did you come to that position? And then maybe how does that, um, like what were your primary influences along the way? Uh, so I, I have evolved a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> Canada. Um, so I started off as more of a conservative just because of my background and, and where I was coming from. And then I, after undergrad, I swung way left Okay. Uh, <laughs> and sort of adopted the more uh, progressive, quote unquote, progressive values mm -hmm. and, and supported Bernie Sanders and Mm. So, um, but I think this this current iteration of myself and my political philosophy uh, is is fairly new. I think uh, this journey started uh, maybe late late last late uh, late twenty nineteen early twenty twenty and just went into full force. I guess um, just right after the whole summer protest um, mm -hmm. began. Um, so I would say I've had mm. a very diverse um political influence uh, mm -hmm. from different areas uh different different perspectives uh, most of my most of the scholars that i'm familiar with are actually scholars from the left so more more critical theorists because that's okay. that's what i was trained in uh, my undergrad and my master's and even beginning my phd um because i my my lens my academic lens previously was critical theory, specifically uh, post-colonial feminism. And so <laughs> that's a wow. whole shift. Um, yeah. And, uh, so my, my I, I, I still think that my education in critical theory uh, has been useful, at least given, a, given me a perspective that uh, I think I can, I can understand where a lot of the discourses today, um, especially in the left, is sort of coming from, and yeah. be able to challenge those those uh, discourses as well. Um, and uh, as far as my leanings now more towards uh, uh, classical liberalism, I found uh, Milton Friedman, uh, mm -hmm. I found Thomas Sowell, 
and uh, Ayn Rand, and those those were my biggest influences. I think, uh, especially with the with the sort of racial awakening that went on last year, I, there was this emphasis on identity that I didn't really connect with, mm -hmm. um, and whereas people were pushing of the, the conversation towards more identity, I found myself being pulled more towards individualism uh, because I didn't necessarily identify a lot with some of the struggles or some of the structures that they claim where, where putting down certain groups of people. I don't necessarily see that as someone who, who subscribed to feminism and I don't necessarily see that as someone who was initially like pro-Black or Pan-Africanist. So mm -hmm. I, I, I just, I needed to be able to find myself and and construct an identity for me. And I think that classical liberalism sort of gave me that avenue, gave me that that mind frame and, and philosophical sort of structure to to create the new Sonia that exists um, right now. Um, I don't know if this is going to be permanent, but it seems to work for me right now and the way I view the world. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly changing uh, uh, the way that I see the world and the way that I interact with people as well. Hmm. Would you say that specifically impacts the way you're currently, obviously it, it must, how you're currently teaching and, you know, is there any particular angle that that, you know, I mean, uh, that that brings to your, uh, to your classroom? So, uh, I, since I started my PhD, I stopped teaching full-time. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah, so now I'm more, uh, I, I still I, I still teach, but not my own classes, so I'm a teaching assistant. So I do run smaller sessions and all of that, but not like a large-scale class like I, I had previously done before. Um, but mm -hmm. even within my my student circles and, and the students that I, that I teach, uh, I, especially since last year, what I try to do every at the beginning of every semester, at the beginning of every course, is to state my ideological position. Mm -hmm. um, because I, as a person who presents as Black <laughs> um, and someone of African, African descent, there is an automatic assumption of what my political background should be and what my political right. position should be. So I do it as an exercise to sort of broaden the minds of my students letting them know mm -hmm. that the way I look doesn't necessarily represent my thought process. Um, and mm -hmm. I always see that that sort of surprise in their faces when I tell them that I don't support Black Lives Matter. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't automatically vote for the liberals or left-wing parties because that's what Black people are supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I make it clear that that my, my teaching style is one of curiosity and debate and constructive dialogue. Every opinion is welcome as long as opinions are backed by sound reasoning and evidence. Um, and that no one should be afraid to to state their position, right? Whether you're conservative right. or you're liberal. Um, and I've actually had students, students, especially in political science, um, I actually have students come to me at the end of semester and like, thank you for actually creating the space for us to talk about it. Like, I hold conservative views and I wouldn't necessarily um, have felt comfortable talking about my positions in some other classes, but like you created the space to be able to do that comfortably. Um, and I think that that's, that's really important because campuses these days are becoming a lot less tolerant of non-left views um, and that is stifling a lot of diversity in viewpoints and, and being able to communicate 
effectively. Uh, so you have people being being uh, sort of taught by professors who are more left leaning. I I I I'm currently doing my PhD and currently teach um, in the university that I've done all of my degrees in. So I kind of have a lot of uh, experience and history there. So most of my teachers were left leaning, um, and that I guess in a way made me left leaning. Um, but I'm trying to sort of communicate to students that there is no one way of, of thinking. Um, there is no one way of being. There's no one politically correct way of interacting with the world. Uh, as long as you do it all with compassion and, and you engage mm -hmm. people constructively, that's what matters. Um, and yeah, so that's what has informed, informed the way I interact with students these days. That's great. Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I, I love what you're um, and I, I, I actually, while you're saying that, I don't know if there's a way we could even share Sonia's really well done website. I love her website and some of your philosophy. And I was reading over that, you know, um, I like your seven points, you know, that um, every person is a sovereign individual. Individuals should not be judged based on immutable characteristics. Uh, they should not be judged based on the characteristics of any group. Um, collections of individuals do not gain uh, more authority. Uh, there, there's an objective reality about which our experiences should be tested for truth. And I saw that that was kind of like your red pill when you started researching some of the BLM's assumptions and started kind of looking at some of that in context to, you know, what's actually out there. The research has been done, maximizing truth content, and then finally the scientific method. And um, which is really interesting because, you know, the anti-racist movement, at least today, defined by Imbram Kendi is very suspicious of a lot of the things that you're saying right here. Oh. Somehow like <laughs> under the white consciousness, if you believe in the scientific method or objectivity, that's the way he would disregard a lot of that. But um, yeah, so that's, you could find Sonia's, uh, which I really like a lot of her publications right there. But um, I was just, I was just curious too, um, living in Canada and it sounds, what I'm fascinated about your story is that you've, you went from conservative and then far left, you know, far as the way you described it, and then had all these teachers for several years. And I got the sense that it wasn't until just a few years ago, you started kind of, you know, what would you say um, your, as your perspective, uh, how was that, how was that challenged? I mean, because you were not raised in North America and how did that um, go into your excellent article, by the way, on how, why I don't support the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, where those, if that makes sense. So I guess, talk to us a little bit about where you started seeing some inaccuracies and what that was like for you in that in that journey. Yeah, so um, I had just, I think I was just, uh, this was 2015 when the Michael Brown uh, shooting happened and sort of sparked the, the institutionalization of Black Lives Matter as we know it today. Um, I was still completing my master's program and um, there was a sense of sort of hopelessness and helplessness that became attached to the Black identity. Um, and it was something I was used to also growing up uh, in, in my country, uh, Nigeria. So it's, it's one of, it's the largest Black country in the world. Um, but life in that country is 
I, I don't even know how to begin to explain it. Um, I'm just going to say that no, no person in North America knows poverty like some of the people in my country and in Africa in general. Uh, the amount of hopelessness and helplessness there um, is something that people, people have to deal with. It's, it's a daily reality. And so contrasting that with the life that I was then privileged to live in North America, um, it just didn't connect for me. I'm like, why am I feeling this hopeless and helpless in a country that is giving me so much opportunity um, to define myself? Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of, of, of um, uh, structures put in place that would make me way better off than people in where I'm coming from. Like, what is that mentality that is tying me to this narrative of, of oppression? And it, it took me a long time to sort of deconstruct that. Um, I know that I, I, in 2015, I went like gung-ho with Black Lives Matter and um, the narratives that they wove around Michael Brown shooting and the, the, the entire entirety of the narrative around police shooting of Black, male, black males. So when this began to even to 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 really crack for me was when it started affecting my my mental health um i recall one day i was i was at a train station i was getting into a train and a police officer entered the train the same time as i did and i was filled with so much fear and dread um, and we weren't in the same compartment. The, the, the train car had two doors and I entered from one and he entered from the other. So he was on the other side of the train compartment. But I was so afraid of this man. Because um, in my head, I was like, this guy could just pull out his gun and shoot me. Because that's that, that was the, the sort of uh, reality that had been constructed for me. Uh, and so when I got home, I was like, why? Why do I think that? the world is out to get me or that certain people are out to get me because of the color of my skin. What possessed me to think that a policeman just by virtue of him doing his work and checking, checking train compartments, just being in the same space as I was, would kill me or would harm me in any way? Why, what kind of discourse breeds such fear? And that way, like that was when the, 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 the cracks started forming and I, I, began to, to dis disassociate myself more with that oppression narrative. I was like, okay, yeah, Black Lives Matter is still a good cause. Like we still need to talk about police brutality and all of that. Well, maybe I don't so much identify with the, with the whole like oppression angle and, 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 and all of that, or the, the fact that I'm threatened or my life is, is constantly being threatened uh, in, in, in whatever society I live in, in the West. Uh, and so, as I went on, uh, and then the the media obviously gave them maximum coverage, uh, and that sort of snowballed into the 2016 elections, and I saw the outright corruption <laughs> that went on, um, especially on the, on the part of the media, and how narratives were being shaped like, right before my eyes. Um, that was actually when I began to pay a lot of attention to news and to news media and their narratives and their narratives and all of that. So the whole idea of narratives became very important to me. And I started deconstructing a lot, a lot of what I thought I knew about the world, what I 
uh, as a feminist or as someone who is pro-Black or as someone who supported Black Lives Matter um, or as someone who was seeing the, the the entirety of the U.S. political system crumble because people could not just imagine that some people could support uh, uh, a man who, who had no political history, who seemed very crude and non-presidential and and was it an attack to the establishment so that and the subsequent hysteria that that characterized the trump presidency i think uh did went a, a huge way in 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 sort of breaking me free from what i thought i knew about narratives and political narratives as well and and with the i, I think it culminated last year when when the George Floyd killing happened and um, Black Lives Matter again started up with their narratives and I saw how those narratives began to affect my friends uh, and some of my family members uh, and I could see that same fear that I once experienced taking over their heads and their hearts uh, and so the, the piece actually began as a sort of explain that to some of my friends and family members. Uh, I was like, this is what the data says, and this is the reality that's being painted for us. Uh, it doesn't match up. And so you don't need to be this afraid. You don't, like, it's not, it's, it's not a death sentence to be a black man in North America. So there is no need to be afraid. And so it started from like a paragraph, you know, two paragraphs, a page, and, now it ended up being so much. Um, so I I intended it to be like for your eyes only, for my friends and family. And then when I when they read it, and some of them gave me feedback, I was like, oh no, this is too good to keep to them. And so I extended it to some of my followers on Instagram. After that, I was like, oh, it's still too good to keep to those people. And so I then forwarded it to the McDonald Laurier Institute, and and uh, they accepted it for publishing. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic article. I mean, it's so well done. It's so well written and clear and crisp. And, you know, you you really show your journey. We linked it on our website for our listeners. Um, to, it was one of the better ones that I've ever read. It was just so in, very much in depth and just um, you never felt like you were unfair to the other side. You and you 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 um, you have a lot of credibility because you at one point. Um, describe yourself as really, you know, in tears and when you first experienced, you know, what was going on and just your journey has been really fascinating. So you get that empathy part where people are coming from. Um, that's interesting. You know, one thing that you bring up is I'm a clinician, so I'm a family therapist and I own a practice in Massachusetts. And I don't know if I was able to tell you a little bit about myself there. And, uh, you know, so I, I got into this because I'm so concerned with people's mental health. And you bring up such a interesting perspective and, and Brad got into this because he's a pastor and he also sees people being affected by the ideas that we tell ourselves. But my passion towards what's going on is the increase of anxiety when people believe things that are, you know, um, basically blatantly untrue, you know, that if they're not, if they're not balancing it with evidence that, you know, at least um, if we're catastrophizing or if we're filtering or if we're having binaries our you know, cognitive behavioral therapy teaches that. Like if you have a high anxious thought that you're going to die in an airplane, you're not going to go on an airplane. But if you can contrast that anxious thought with at least the evidence on why you're not going to die in an airplane, 
your anxiety is going to weigh down. And it just, I just that perspective by itself, just to balance your thoughts is going to significantly decrease your anxiety and your depression. Um, and so that's interesting how you bring up that story about you going in. Um, you know, as, uh, I'm getting a little feedback on something. I don't know if that's me or do you know what that is? Yeah, I, I think your, your mic may not be as good in that oh, hotel. Uh, all right. I'll just leave it. Used now. To. I'll, I'm, I might jump on the, um, on the iPad, but that's, but anyway, so I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about that because it's, yeah, about your own mental health. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, it's not only, not only with, with the Black Lives Matter issue, even when I began to learn a lot about, uh, when, when I began to sort of go deeper into my studies on critical theory, that in itself did affect my mental health quite a bit because it's such a defeatist way of looking at the world, especially when you think that there are all of the structures that are sort of erected to keep you down as a person. Um, so I found I found myself being weary because I was a woman in a very oppressed oppressive patriarchal world. Um, I found it distressing that I was an African in a, in a, in a world that, that constantly exploits Africa and African, Africa's resources. I found it distressing that I was a black person in a white supremacist world that's constantly being, being oppressed and discriminated against because I was black. It's all of those narratives are, are distressing to the mind uh, in and of themselves. And so it's it's very, very um, not surprising that people who are on the left are more likely to report like mental health struggles um, than people on any other side of the political spectrum because there's just so much angst and, and, and fear and anxiety that is, that is tied to a lot of the things that we talk about, even with climate change. And that's not to say that climate change isn't happening, but when you have people being so alarmist, uh, <laughs> when you have people being so alarmist about climate change and about the future, not a lot of people are going to be really engaging with the world in very healthy ways and so if you constantly find an enemy on every turn i wonder what what the what your quality of life would be like right it, it, there's a saying that if you go looking for oppression you will find oppression right so just tracing my history from learning about critical theory and then black lives matter and then just i found it just really immensely freeing and and just overwhelmingly good when I was like, I am done with identity of any form. Like I am going to engage with the world as Sonia and however the world engages back with me, that's cool. If there are structures or barriers that I need to to transcend, I know how to work around those, but I'm not going to keep on believing that that there's there are these imaginary structures that that are keeping me down or don't, don't want me to succeed or that are actively seeking to kill me. Um, that was very freeing when I when I got to that point uh, in my evolution, and I think that a lot of people are still sort of stuck in that mindset. I see the whole conversation, especially around Simone Biles, um, 
recently where people are like black women have the whole world in their shoulders and we're exhausted every day and like what why where how like if you are carrying burdens it's because you choose to carry certain burdens no one is asking you to carry burdens of generations if you don't want to carry burdens of generations and that's not dismissing um the history of of oppression or the history of hurt uh, uh, for some groups of people no it's just about choosing your battles in this life like no one is going to clap for you for being a martyr <laughs> i'm sorry but like people have to know how to how to prioritize themselves in this world that's so drenched with identity that's really well hey, that's very so well said Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to go back a little bit on this, you were talking about the importance of narratives and we hear a lot about lived experience right? and, and your mm -hmm. own story and how that how that fits in with the with the broader meta narrative in culture. And I, I was wondering, because you're from Nigeria, that you've been here since uh, or you, you've been in North America since 2010, um, was your perspective downplayed or de devalued because you didn't grow up in North America, you didn't have the cultural uh, baggage, I guess you could say, or whatever, like the 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 oppression, I guess. Um, although you started off by saying no one here could say that they've experienced the kind of poverty uh, that that you saw um, in Nigeria. Is, is I guess I just wonder if if your perspective was ever if you ever felt like your view was less valuable within the Black Lives Matter movement among peers when you were, you know, when you were on that side or in, you know appreciative of the movement. Yeah, um, I think actually you know two I know for sure one of the Black Lives Matter founders is of Nigerian heritage. Okay. Yeah, um, I think of them are but i'm very sure about one just because of her name um and um so i i i i don't think not in that space was my my perspective uh sort of devalued um but i have i've had comments of people who have made comments uh about my not being a a, a an african-american descendant of slaves and so i can't necessarily understand the generational trauma and how that sort of uh, translates into different experiences between black immigrants and again, uh, the descendants of slaves. Uh, I, I, I get to encounter that, that sort of um, response whenever I'm talking about disparities and outcomes. So, um, in, in, so in a general sense, not really. Um, I think that yeah. maybe because I'm in Canada, um, so Canada has a different sort of relationship with its black population, and that's because we don't have that much descendants of slaves in Canada. Most people are immigrants, um, and but the, the general point that I like to say is when people are talking about Black Lives Matter, when they're talking about black people, you're including. A whole range of people in that in 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 that identity or in that category. We're not dis, we're not differentiating between the ones who are descendants of slaves and the ones who are not. Uh, everyone is included in the statistics. Everyone is included in the narrative. So why should my perspective as someone who isn't a descendant of slaves sort of matter? Um, I I'm technically the way that the they conceive of the structure. 
the structure doesn't discriminate against people. You're, it, it, the only criteria is that you have to be black, according to them. Um, so, so not really, but I, I, I do think that my experience growing up in Nigeria has informed uh, the way that I see the world uh, in North America, especially in North America here, uh, as a person of African descent. So I, I usually don't say I'm black nowadays, especially I don't identify with blackness because blackness is has sort of begun or it's, it, it connotes certain values, principles, characteristics that I don't identify with. So I usually say I'm Nigerian or I'm of African descent. That's how I identify myself. Um, not that I'm black. Um, and that's mostly because I wasn't born black, right? Um, I was born as a member of my specific tribe in my specific state in Nigeria. I didn't have any concept of blackness. I didn't. I didn't know what it meant to be what it meant to be black until I left Nigeria and came to Canada. And that identity was then forced upon me. It wasn't an identity that I embraced, right? Um, so I, I tend to make that disti distinction. And it's just it's not a, only me. Like I have friends that are also immigrants uh, that also try to make that distinction because we're being sort of woven into a narrative that doesn't necessarily represent us and uh, it's, it's kind of a way to push back on that. And it's actually a project I'm thinking of working on and sort of maybe publishing something on just the, the whole narrative of what it means to be black as an immigrant person, especially within the Canadian context. Um, but I don't know if I answered your question right there. Well, yeah, go ahead, Brad, yeah. I was just gonna follow oh. up and say, yeah, the that that's, mm. it makes perfect sense because just like um, all, all black people are sort of uh, painted in a certain light. The same thing with with white people, right? White privilege. It doesn't matter your background, your your class, your uh, origin, your country of origin. It's you're, if you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're black, you're an oppressed individual. Mm -hmm. And um, and the whole re you know part of the reason why we we wanted to start a, a podcast was to have a discussion with people about just the reality, right? Like what is the, what is the, the data show? And, and, and you find that disparities are, are prevalent in every culture and within groups. So there's not like a, it's not, it's not like um, only one particular group is privileged and it, like people within that group are privileged and, and underprivileged. And anyways, it, I think it's a, it's just fascinating how much that, that discussion now is, is just, assumed to be a product of white supremacy if you buy into that so you can be a black person but suffer from whiteness because yeah. because of the ideology differences well and, and yeah and also just when you try to whenever you try to destroy the individual and put them all in a collective group you really do you have no room for outside outliers or you know outside forces and that was Anne Rand's point when she wrote Anthem which is a great little novel on that the whole story is where the collective is just subsumed it subsumes over all the individuals and um, that's why she you know she thought that you shouldn't even use the word we because it's unless you're talking about your own choice or as a second thought I mean I I I love what she wrote. I wrote this down and because I wanted to bring this up because I know that you said earlier, Anne Rand, and I saw, I noticed a lot of that individuality there. 
but she wrote this in the book Anthem, and she says, I owe nothing to my brothers, nor do I gather debts from them. I ask none to live for me, nor do I live for any others. I covet no man's soul, nor is my soul theirs to covet. I am neither foe nor friend to my brothers, but such as each of them shall deserve of me. And to earn my love, my brothers must do more than to have been born. Um, I do not grant my love without reason, nor any chance uh, passerby who may wish to claim it. I honor men with my love, but honor is a thing to be earned. And she says, I shall choose my friends among men, but neither slaves nor masters. I, and I shall choose only such as pleases me. And them I shall love and respect, but neither command nor obey. And we shall join hands when we wish or walk alone when we so desire. For in the temple of the spirit, each man is alone. Let each man accord, keep his temple unclothed and, and undefiled. Let them join hands with others if he wishes, but only beyond his holy threshold. And then she says, I'll end on this, for, we sh for the word we must never be spoken, save by one's choice and as a second thought. This word must never be placed first within a man's soul, else to become a monster. The root of all evils on earth, the root of man's torture by men and of uns unspeakable lie. And I thought that was just brilliant. And this is, her words are just so prevalent of what's really going on. You know, it's because you are, you know, <laughs> you do see that collective mindset of compassion just take over people's identities. But some, and you said earlier, like, I don't even identify as, you know, black and, you know, and that's the part of me get kind of sad on that bit. It's true that you are not according to what their collective, you know, what, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know who in the world came up with the the seven points of what that's even supposed to mean. Is there a committee? You know, and I would just say too that even amongst whites, I you know you have whites in Appalachia who think totally different. You have whites from Irish origin. You know, and Thomas Sowell talks about this in his book White Rednecks and Red Liberal Black Liberals. How you know whites from Ireland were often the slave owners, and blacks amongst slave owners actually picked up a lot of that Irish mentality that kind of blamed a lot of people for their problems. A lot of people don't think that. A lot of black culture in America is not from African descent. It's from white redneck behavior that tends to blame rather than take responsibility. Thomas Sowell makes a very provocative claim that a lot of old like um, black cultures that are in any cities, this is his words, not mine, that are actually a, a connection between white rednecks. And so in a sense, you could even say, stop acting like a white redneck, okay? <laughs> like, be yeah. yourself, you know, because, you know, and that's a provocative essay, but it's, I mean, soul is spot on. Like, I've seen that in amongst whether I'm dealing with, you know, whites up here, and I, I live in the Boston area um, and the New Hampshire area that also tend to blame a lot as well. But mm -hmm. anyway, I, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm just brainstorming now, yeah. not really, yeah. Go ahead. There's a very clear distinction between African culture and Black American culture. They're, they're not in any way similar. So to to even claim that that these people in in inhabit or exhibit African cultures, that's really not true. I mean, if there's even no one homogenous African culture, but uh, if we're to look at uh, sort of the, the notion of family and community and, and all of that, it's markedly different from 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 the way uh, uh, the African-American descendants of slaves sort of 
construct their own identity. So yeah, it, it is the whole idea of, of the individual versus the person, the identity, I think it's, it's something that a lot more people need to understand. And it's not claiming the individual as this atomistic um, person that doesn't necessarily care about their broader community. No, that's not what individualism is. It's, it's ownership of the self, but knowing where the self stands uh, in relation to the community, right? The individual can choose to be a member of a community, but the individual reserves the right to leave that community without threat of force or violence or whatever it is. Um, and so there, there is, while there is a separation, it's the, it's also very intentional, right? It's it's people acting for their own best interest in a way that sort of makes sense to them. Uh, and I think that the community communities are obviously important. Like I don't think I don't think there are a lot of people in this world who can just live solitary lives, right? Um, but the point is that is, is the idea of voluntary entry and exit. That's 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 the core of individualism, the whole idea of volunteerism. Well, and also as a clinician, if I could jump in, that's exactly how I t- I help people. I mean, you bring up two. This is a very clinical discussion. Like, it really is really fascinating because not only do you bring up your own anxiety rising when you're believing things that are not being balanced, but you know what Anne Rand is talking about. I do everything according to what I would like to do. Those are called healthy boundaries. If somebody's coming into my office and it's often because they have no boundaries, it's because they're enmeshed or they're diffused and they're so concerned about what everyone else is thinking, they're utterly exhausted. Their marriage is falling apart. Their church is falling apart because they're so focused on what everyone else is thinking that they're not being clear. They've hijacked their own voice. And the wonderful thing about boundaries is if, if you can get somebody to tell you what you would like to do, that person doesn't that person doesn't leave their community. If anything, they become significantly more nuanced because you, in your article, how you, you really criticize BLM about the lack of nuance. Um, But they also, they're a lot happier because they're, you start appreciating this person, these persons, the person's difference and what they're, what insight they're offering in their community. And what's so unfortunate about this movement, it's, it's so insular that it doesn't respect the differences of dialogue that it that different those differences of dialogue could really make it thrive into such a wonderful community but what you've done is just you've insulated yourself from any influence mm-hmm. to your own in-group bias that it's like you've kicked out all these wonderful family members that could offer such great insight you've told them all to leave and you've just got your little club it's very yeah it's just it's it's unfortunate because you're you know it is the, the, the whole rhetoric of defund the police, right? It's seen, it's it's one of the chief slogans of, of the Black Lives Matter movement. But at the same time, when you actually look at the data, when you actually look at people, personal opinions, not a lot of Black people are in favor of defunding the police. Yet it's something that they tout as something that must be done and that Black people want. When you actually ask the Black people, no, we want more police on our streets, right? What we want is more empathetic connection between people and the police, but we definitely do want more police, right? And there's no way you can defund the police and then have more police at the the same time. So there is this disconnect between the communities they, 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 they claim to be serving 
and the goals that they seem to 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 sort of center as as um, uh, what's what's core for them. Yeah, uh, and that's a good point to transition on. I know we we've got got about twenty minutes left, and I'd love to talk about some of the your current recommendations because. But before we get there, I'd, I um, I'd just like to say or or ask you what is the when you started to transition away from the movement. Um, I don't know what did that do to your group of friends was you, you said you've you started to communicate with some folks i mean was there a radical transformation of the group you began hanging out with or did other people's minds begin to change with you what, what was your experience there uh well unfortunately uh, fortunately for me uh, i i have groups of uh group of friends that sort of are reasonable people <laughs> i guess um i i Again, fortunately for me, I haven't necessarily lost as much in this culture war compared to most people. Um, and so people that I've tried to talk to have been sort of responsive and and sort of amenable to, to my ideas because I know that they trust me. I mean, if you trust me on something else, you could also trust me on, on this particular issue. Um, and so... In that space, I've I've not had any problems whatsoever. Um, I get most of my pushback in public versus in my private life, um, and and I think that it's it's great that I have these people to fall back on when when the rest of the world gets really confrontational for me. Um, but yeah, I do talk to a lot of people though who have lost friends and family because of this uh, this issue whether it's black life black lives matter or the general sort of conversation around race um and i i do feel for them and i always tell people to pick their battles like if you don't feel like this is something that is worth you losing your friends and family over don't talk about it um not every not every battle in every situation has to be won like you need to know what is most important for you. Um, some people are are soldiers in the culture war. Some people are just going to be spectators. And it's good if you want to be a spectator. Just don't block the the exits for for other people. Like it. So for me personally, I I haven't lost as much. Like even with the paper, um, my my department was very uh, supportive. Uh, actually, the chair of my department was like, he's going to write a letter to to one of the news organizations here in Vancouver who decided to sort of pull down an interview that one of their reporters did with me. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so far I haven't gotten that much uh, pushback personally, but publicly, yeah, obviously. <laughs> What's been some of the most acute pushback or, you know, on publicly, would you say, I mean, what, what in particular would you say some um, that you hear? So, yeah. Oh, I mean, outside of the trolls who have called me an enabler of, of racists and white supremacists or uh, someone called me a, a Trump supporter. I don't know how I'm going to be a Trump supporter when I'm in Canada. Someone uh, <laughs> <laughs> else. Someone else called me a, 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 a an anti-black um, black person. Uh, I mean, I've been called racist even. Like it's 
so much of that but those are more trolls like the more constructive i get or quote-unquote constructive uh, uh criticisms have been more about how i how i'm giving fodder to people who um are very negative about black lives matter movement and of race relations in general i'm like if i say something that's true and racists use my truths to to further their own aims like how does that impact me like if i say that that uh black people are not disp disproportionately being killed by the police and someone who's a white supremacist takes that takes that quote uses that uses that to make their own point how is that my problem the fact remains right. that the fact remains that either i i said what is true whatever the truth is being used to do is not my problem um but there are there are all of those there are some people who are more about oh you know yes yes you're correct but you need to say it in this way or you need to not say it or something of that sort um and then there are people who are like i'm the talking <laughs> i'm a talking black person for especially for the institutes that um that publish my piece and uh it's like can you see all the people who are who are retweeting your your article and like commenting your post they're all white people and all of that I'm like yeah unfortunately my the audience of my paper are supposed to be black people but the chances that black people are going to read it is really low um and so i'm trying i try as much as possible to go into spaces that that um, i know would need that piece but those spaces are not spaces that would want me um yeah, and i i mentioned before about a news organization so when my article came out i was contacted by uh, a news organization here in vancouver for an interview and uh, it was just about like how did i get just similar to this how did i get to the to the perspectives that i now hold and what that means for me and like what 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 consequences would there be for black lives Matter and all of that and I thought it was a good interview. It was like 40 minutes and there was supposed to be a write-up about it. Um, and uh, the next day, I didn't know when the article was published. Like no one, like after I finished the interview, that was it. Like I didn't hear anything from anyone. And the next day, someone sent me a message on Instagram and was like, oh, have you seen this post uh, on Facebook uh, about this news organization pulling down your article or putting down the article on you? I was like, no, I haven't. So I went there and I saw their their sort of message, and they were like, oh, they apologized for for um, publishing a story on Black Lives Matter. It did not meet their standards of fair and balanced journalism, and they did not consider the potential harm it would do to the Black community. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> um, mm. First of all, we've had we've been inundated with. Black Lives Matter content for the better part of a year, all pro-Black Lives Matter. And now someone is critiquing, soundly critiquing the organization and all of a sudden doesn't meet standards for fair and balanced journalism. Yeah, it's also infantilizing as well, like creating harm, like, wow, you know, exactly. because you had another person um, offer a critique and for you to think differently that your, your community will be harmed. And I seriously doubt that the, the person that's maybe offering that critique is even black. I, I have a feeling it's probably some, you know, white liberal woman that's angry at her father still. So that's me. That's neither here or there. 
<laughs> so that's usually 99%. That's usually where it's coming from. Um, I know our time, we have about 10 more minutes left, but I mean, I, I yeah. also just, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Brad. Did you, I was, well, gonna... maybe we could transition to that last bit, like almost yeah. to the conclusion I'll share from your article here. So let me pull it mm. up. Um, your, here's the, here's the article, which is a PDF file you can find and we'll link to it in the notes. But why do I not support, why I do not support the Black Lives Matter movement by Sonia Orlu and near the end, you mentioned several things um, that are still worth having a conversation about, right? You said it's, it's important to note that one can promote community focused and engaged law enforcement, police, account police accountability and citizen oversight without calling for defund the police. Uh, one can support demilitarization and denounce the arbitrary and lethal use of force by the police without demanding abolition. One can support the address and redress of stru structural inequality without violently tearing down the pillars of the system. One can support tempering capitalism with conditional welfare for the vulnerable without calling for socialism or communism. One can do all of the above while advocating for and uplifting black individuals without supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and organization. So I thought that was a great way of sort of saying, look, there's still some concerns that are worth having a conversation about, but we cannot cut off uh, you know, people's voices just because they don't fit into the perfect box that Black Lives Matter has, has presented to us. Um, any any kind of follow up on that, or maybe even use this as an opportunity to talk about what you're, how you're currently engaging the discussion. Um, you know, are are you, are you continuing to write? Are you hoping that through education you'll be able to um, go in a certain direction on this? Mm -hmm. uh, so I currently run my Instagram page, and it's more of like an educational page, especially in my posts, um, and. In that, I'm, I'm trying to draw attention to, again, this nuance that a lot of people miss, especially when it comes to individualism and capitalism uh, and the whole idea of racial identity. Hmm. Because I think that they're all, they're all sort of interconnected in the way that we, we deal with societal ills. So we can look at structural inequality, for example, and see that as evidence of some, some uh, I guess, uh, um, nefarious, well, some nefarious forces acting to to uh, um, discriminate or marginalize against some people. And some people even think that that is going to be enduring. Uh, but if you notice here, I specifically mentioned structural inequality and not structural racism, um, because structural racism is a conclusion that needs to be proven. It's not a. It's not a given. It's not a. It's not a, a starter. Now we can we can mm -hmm. recognize structural inequality, and then sort of ask the question: What causes that structural inequality? And for all we know, race could be part of that cause. Uh, but to reflexively call everything structural racism or systemic racism, uh, I think that that is that is an assertion that needs to be proven. And so what I want to sort of, I, what I hope is that through education, through fostering of dialogue with, with different people across different, uh, different parts of the, the political spectrum, 
uh, is that we can come to re recognize that there are certain fundamental, uh, I guess, values that we all hold, and that's the, every individual uh, is entitled to certain rights. Every individual is is human and should be treated like a human. And so, mm -hmm. how do we go about doing that? Right? How do we do it with compassion? How do we do it with with uh, um, measures that don't damage uh, the individual, damage the society while we are at it? Mm -hmm. And personally, I don't think that, uh, um, for example, socialist principles are the way to go. I think that history has proven time and time again that that is an absolute disaster. Um, so how do we go about sort of understanding that people are human and treating everyone equally um, as we move on? Now, the concept of anti-racism sort of factors into this, but I don't think that anti-racism as presently constructed is actually anti-racist. I think it's just a, a rehash of old ideas in new packaging. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's to me um i just want to have conversations and educate people on like how do we live in this moment how, how do we how do we conceptualize of our world how do we come up with solutions that are more constructive rather than reactive um and i i don't have all the answers <laughs> i'm yeah. just one person obviously um but i think that there, there, there needs to be much more uh, education on a lot of basic things, um, especially for the people that need it. Uh, I, 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 I get frustrated because I like the people who follow me are not necessarily the people who need my education. I mean, um, I, I know it's, it's, it, it sounds crazy, but like the people I think that need my, my, or need to hear what I'm saying are not necessarily the people that are hearing what I'm saying right now. And I'm still trying to figure out ways to get into those spaces. Yeah. Um, but, but so far right now, I just, I'm focusing on just putting out a lot of material out there. Maybe I'll get back to like writing full pieces like this, probably something before the year runs out, but it's most likely going to be on either anti-racism or an identity. Well, I could say, too, I mean, I, I actually think your voice does need to be heard. I mean, especially, I mean, where Brad and I are both part of uh, the PCA, which is a Presbyterian church in America. Brett and I'm, I was part of an Anglican church. Thankfully, it's gotten back. But I could say this in my religious community, this movement has decimated our communities to the point where it's divided churches big time. And I think it's because there's a there's a lot of overlap of fundamentalism, old school fundamentalism that is integrated into anti-racism, you know. And and Kendi says that Kendi says that you know he listened to a lot of James Cone or read a lot of James Cone as 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 his um his mom and dad were very much into the you know the black evangelical movement at that point. And Kendi has a lot of overlap, you know. I mean, when you were saying earlier about you know you you're going to cause harm to people who are in the black community. I remember being a fundamentalist about 15 years ago and having religious leaders tell me, Peter, don't read that book because if somebody sees you reading that book, you are giving, you know, the devil it's due and you may influence your weak brother to um, read something that's going to take him from God's word. I mean, it's pretty much exact. I mean, not that it's exact, but it's, there's a lot of religious oversight that I found in anti-racism. That's like, 
wow, this is, this is not scientific. It's much more, much more like a cult, like, you know, that you're very black and white feeling and, you know, a conversion experience and us versus them, you know, and just, so the reason why I say all that is because I do have a lot of, you know, and they, they, they follow me and I love them, you know, but people, especially in the religious community that truly think that if you're not speaking on these issues or if you're being objective, you're not listening to our black brothers and sisters who are coming in our religious organizations and you're being bigoted, you're not listening to their voices. I mean, so you have a voice, especially believe it or not with a lot of religious folks, <laughs> because, you know, I'm looking for help here because I've been called a racist. Brad has, you know, I've, I've been, told that, you know, I'm not a very good listener, even though that's what I do for a job, because I'm questioning some of these things. Um, I've seen, like I said, churches just completely fall apart on these issues. So I think there's a, there's a time, even though you may not identify, you know, with, with that move, that's, that's fine. I think a lot of people who are in the religious community, we just, we like truth wherever we find it, whether, you know, and that's why we have you on, you know, it's because like you, your article is so well done and so well written. And we just, we love for people that advocate for truth. And um, anyway, so I want to encourage you. You are being heard by people that need to hear this. <laughs> but um, I didn't know if you wanted to end. I want to be right. I, I want to respect your yeah. time. And also, do you have, I, I would love to hear, do you have hope um, moving forward or do you, are you skeptical? And if so, why on either war? And what could you, what would you like to encourage um us who want to keep moving forward, I guess. And Brad, I don't know if you had any. Well, I, I'll just piggyback on the exact same point. Cause I was going to say, let's end on a positive note. Talk about there has <laughs> been some real progress, right. Within the, within the uh, topic of police brutality. And um, that progress oftentimes gets minimized by the black lives matter organization. Uh, and the, this, in order to promote defunding the police, but we just think about the, the how many, um, how many cities are now using body require body cam uh, footage, and and obviously that was an expensive introduction to the police force to to ins install that. I mean, our our city has body cam uh, officers. I think all everyone that's on the field has has a body camera on, um, and so these there's there are obviously still problems there, and maybe some things that can be worked through, but in order to po fix the policing issues, it uh, defunding the police, it just takes us backwards. Right. And, and so let's, let's talk about that progress. I'll give you just a few minutes to, to wrap up with that topic. Yeah, I think, I think there's been a lot of constructive dialogue that's being had. Um, so I, I'm a huge advocate of, of funding the police, um, just in terms of hiring more police officers or even paying them more and giving them more rigorous training. So you get people who actually want to be there and study to be there. Um, there also needs to be things like funding for more psychological, like psychological therapy for a lot of these police officers, uh, because that goes a lot long way in countering bias and not maybe not necessarily racial bias but just bias towards people in general because i think one of the one of the issues with the tamir rice shooting was those officers had just come from uh, had just had just come from another very stressful situation and that impacted their ability to to react as as best as they could to the tamir rice um uh, incident and so 
that's a lot of things that people don't talk about, like PTSD within within uh, the cop population. So again, there, there's a lot. And then training and more de-escalation measures, like um, uh, so that they don't get to use their guns quite as as fast as some of them do. Um, so these are things that people who are who are interested in more like constructive um, uh, solutions have been talking about. And I hope that a lot of police departments uh, do that. I think that as the data shows more that people are against the idea of defunding the police, um, a lot of these these departments and a lot of us as like bureaucrats um, will be more responsive to, to listening to what people are actually saying versus rhetoric. Um, and so in that sense or in that space, I think I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, in 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 how that's turning out. But in the space of identity, I don't I don't think I'm that optimistic. I think that we 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 we're still going to go through a very tough process before we come out of come out of it. Um, just because there's just so much about identity these days, uh, whether it's racial identity, gender identity, whatever it is that is subsuming the entire conversation. And, and a lot of people are afraid to speak out about a lot of things. And, and um, we're seeing people in, in places of power that are um, not helping issues at all. And instead further, further dividing people along this identity, identity line. So in that instance, I think that um, there's still a lot more work to be done. I'm not as optimistic in that, in, 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 on that level. Um, but I hope that as as long as people are not balkanized and not sort of shot out in uh, shot in their different echo chambers, that we're able to get information filtering out to different different uh, um, uh, spaces and and hopefully get some productive dialogue going around. At least that's what I try to do. Yeah. Well, that's why we started this podcast. That's why we have you on. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, uh, I had, I, I know, I we we got to wrap it up. But one one last question popped into my mind as you were talking, and I just love to hear, especially from your perspective and the education you've received in critical theory. I've I've heard people critique uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. They kind of say, "Well, James Lindsay is he was a mathematician. He doesn't know what he's talking about." Yeah. Would you say? Uh, have you read cynical theories uh, by James Lindsay or or or? heard some of his um podcasts I've, yeah i've i've I, i'm familiar with his material i've not read the book in its entirety but i do have it and i've seen i've read excerpts of it uh but i think he's fine i mean he's read okay. he's well read on the matter yeah. so it doesn't i mean he's, i guess in that sense he's self-taught um mm -hmm. you don't need to go to a university for four years or six years to be able to learn critical theory and as long as you do the work do the reading Okay. that's great better better understanding than most people who actually quote unquote studied it so have it well that was that's great i just wanted to hear that i'll, yeah. I'll use your name now against everyone who argues. <laughs> <laughs> well well that's thank the you thing. that's the the first and i like what you said sonia i think you had you know accused of it of real emotional blackmail which i think is a fantastic word in one of your articles you know that i think if you don't agree then it's because you don't listen and if you don't listen, it's because you don't really understand. And that's the Kafka trap that Lindsay often talks about. I mean, you could read something, totally understand it, and yet 
completely disagree with it. All those are one, you know. Um, Sonia, thank you so much. This has actually been a great interview. I mean, I, I, um, you're such a good writer. I have a lot of, I'm, I can't wait to see where you go in your career. And um, you've already gone so far so quickly. And I, I feel very lucky for having you on. I almost feel like you're going to be impossible to reach in about two or three years. <laughs> I do. I have a pot. Um, I was an early fan of Coleman Hughes uh, way back when, like four years ago. And I was telling everybody about him. And now he's like, I, I've emailed him a few times and I haven't heard anything from him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a pretty, pretty I, um, busy. Yeah. So I'm just wow. so, I'm so thankful for, that you came yeah. on. I just, the more I went, yeah, saw a lot of your work. I would encourage all of our listeners to, to read um, Sonia's article. It's fantastic. And um, thank you so much. And um, yeah, you're one Thanks. of the you're one of the uh, rare people I see on social media that never attacks the person, always attacks the argument, and it's never personal with you. And um, I love that. I love that about finding people, true researchers, like the true you know who do that all day, and that's what we're kind of longing for. I love if you have a good if you have a good argument, I'm ready to read it. You know, give it to me. Um, you know, and I, I will always respect you, even if I strongly disagree, as long as you can give me a good argument. So I just uh, thank you again, Sonia, for coming on. Yeah.